Well, good day to you, and welcome back to Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Hope you're having a great day today. And we've got a good podcast lined up for you once again. And if you were with us on our previous edition, you'll know that this is part two of a podcast featuring our very own research fellow here at Acton, Michael Matheson Miller, who is talking on the phone with former ambassador to the Holy See for the United States, Francis Rooney. Ambassador Rooney served under George W. Bush as the ambassador to the Vatican and has now uh, released a book detailing some of his experiences as ambassador. And without further ado, let's get back to Michael Matheson Miller and his conversation with Ambassador Francis Rooney. You know, one of the things that's been interesting is with this anti-Catholicism that's been part of the history. At the same time, uh, John Paul II, he came to to, uh, to Denver and visited the United States. And George Weigel writes about how nobody expected people to show up. And, you know, just tons of people showed up. It was incredible. And then Benedict XVI came. And I, I remember, I, in fact, I remember clearly watching it on television. Uh, and he gave this very nice, very fantastic talk. And if I'm not mistaken, George Bush, President Bush, kind of stood up quite excitedly and said, that was an awesome speech, Your Holiness. And you could you could hear it. You know, I don't think he meant it to be heard, but it was but but really Benedict visited the United States. A lot of people liked him and they were, I think, surprised. Can you talk a little bit about that, sure. that time? I'm glad and you brought that up. What were some of the effects? That is, a, that is a very important point that relates back to the alignment, natural alignment of the Holy See and uh, and the United States. Here you have I tried to put this in the book that the the two uh speeches uh, of the, the presidents and Pope Benedict were totally unchoreographed. But when you read them and, and put them side by side, they they are so naturally aligned that you would think someone had had to have choreographed it. And here you had Pope uh, the president quoting Pope Benedict, and you had Pope Benedict quoting the founding fathers and describing, you know, uh, our self-evident truths. So it was really a kind of a magical moment. Yeah, I, I do remember. I mean, it really struck me. It's like, that was an awesome speech, Your Holiness. I mean, he was just so, so excited. Let's talk a little bit about part of the thaw. And, you know, it's 1983, 1984 that you have the official relations. And one of the things you talk about is how we become new friends, right? And, and it was really the Cold War. And you have a quote from Gorbachev in the beginning of your chapter where you say, quote, everything that happened in Eastern Europe would have been impossible without the Pope. That's Mikhail Gorbachev's comment. And it's really during this period of the Cold War, you talk a little bit about Truman recognizing the importance of Catholicism in fighting communism, et cetera. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, the, uh, I mean, the, there's many aspects of the role that Pope John Paul played in the demise of uh, the Berlin Wall and communism So you know, that have been written about. But there's some nuances that aren't so widely understood, like the, the, the synchronized work of the Holy See and the United States uh, intelligence agencies to get the typewriters to the solidarity resistance workers and to to get the labor unions in the United States to help them with funding and things like that. But but the uh, and I think Gorbachev pretty well summed it up. You, it took the Holy See's soft power voice to link and leverage with the uh, secular uh, powers of the United States and, and primarily the United States and, and the UK to uh, to accomplish this. And that's a big time. Let's talk a little bit about soft power. You've, you've mentioned that a couple times. Maybe you could explain it, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Sure. Um, soft power is the ability to influence and persuade rather than coerce. 
and and it's accomplished by using a morally probative argument, convincing argument, logic, uh, building a bridge to the other to to the people with different opinions that makes it creates a climate that is more conducive to their receptivity to different ideas. And the Holy Season is squarely in the middle of all this. I mean, they, they don't have territory, they don't have a hegemonic agenda, and they're not at least externally a political organization. They may be a little politically inside sometimes. And, uh, and as such, they can do a few things that no secular nation can do. They speak from a platform of absolute moral integrity in the world affairs. They, they can speak clearly like Pope Benedict did, like Pope Francis has uh, recently, uh, certainly like Pope John Paul did a few times, like waving his finger at Jaroszelski in Poland and saying Poland's one big concentration camp. No, no elected official is going to talk like that. you know. Uh, and, and as such, they can get that message out there in a unique way. The other thing is is they, uh, they carry this moral heft or, or probity because of their their uh, lack of these, these secular agendas. And many times we have seen the Holy See say things that we wanted said, but we could get them to say it, and it means, means a whole lot more. Uh, I put a thing in the book about the, the work of um, uh, Pope Benedict getting those Iranian uh, UK sailors released from Iran, where both the United States and, and the UK were absolutely prevented from direct dialogue with Iran by their own foreign policy. And that's, that story's been repeated many times all over the place of, of, of people being helped and, and the Holy See playing a quiet and uh, sometimes covert intermediary role. Do you think soft power then some, it sometimes works, it sometimes doesn't, right? Yeah, I think you took the quip from Stalin, you know, how many, how many uh, divisions does the, does the Pope have? There's a, a certain amount of disdain for it, but it, it, does it, does it, what are the conditions where soft power can work? Because obviously sometimes it doesn't. I mean, sometimes coercion just rolls it over. Yeah, and, and okay, heretofore in the Middle East, we haven't seen, uh, other than the Regensburg speech, we haven't seen the repeated calling for ending Christian persecution and calling for inclusive uh, concepts of citizenship in these uh, Arab countries and stuff. We haven't seen that do a whole lot of good yet. You know, there's maybe the number of churches in Saudi Arabia maybe have, maybe have doubled from one to two. And, you know, Georgetown does have this little outpost in Qatar, which uh, seems to be gaining some traction. But... Uh, so you'd have to say it's been limited. It's only actually really worked well when Pope Benedict addressed the issues head-on in, in, in a brutal format that brought some non-radicalized Muslim clerics to the forefront. But now that you're seeing countries like Saudi Arabia call for uh, criticism of ISIL and al-Qaeda, and you're seeing the leading cleric in Saudi Arabia speak up against it, you've got to harken back to some of the things that Holy See's been saying for a long time and maybe say, well, maybe their soft power is doing some good. And now that we have a point of, uh, of people realizing that weaponry alone can't solve this stuff, that when, when the, the, the motivations for the conflict are so deeply religious, tribal, cultural, etc., I think people realize that the, Holy See, that the, that the soft power of, uh, voices do have an important role. I, here in the last year, we've seen, for their own nefarious agendas perhaps, uh, both Putin and uh, Rouhani in Iran call for deployment of soft power in, in resolving the international crises of today because hard, hard power is just too expensive uh, in life and, and money and, and too undeterminative and unsuccessful in combating asymmetrical conflict, which we learned that the hard way in Vietnam and we're still learning it right now. 
You know, you, you mentioned something I, I wanted to to, to um, ask you. So, so let's maybe go to that now, and that is the ch- real challenge of Christian persecution. I mean, uh, I've heard some numbers that over two hundred Christians are losing their life every day around the world. It's really three sources of persecution: uh, secularism, communism, and uh, Islam, radical Islam uh, persecution. Can you talk a little bit about um, the challenges for for Christian persecution and what? Maybe the Holy See, you've talked a little bit, but what Holy See is doing and um, this, there's, you know, I think the, 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 when there was a possibility of invasion, you know, Pope Francis, they were talking about peace and, and things, but we've still seen, there hasn't been a war, but, but there's a lot of Christian persecution. What do you think needs to be done and what do you think the Holy See is trying to do in the United States to try to, to, to stop this? I mean, real big challenge yeah, that millions well, of Christians yeah, are facing the, throughout the world. The one thing that they've, they've tried to do from day one is to work on the plight of the refugees, to improve their lot, both in Jordan, Turkey. used to be there were some in Syria, but they've all migrated, I guess, to Jordan now. And the Holy See, even back when, when you and I were both in Rome, we, we were working hard to try to improve the lot of the refugees. Now, you know, you've got the uh, uh, this threat seems to have broadened and metastasized, into uh, the ISIL thing in uh, Syria and Iraq and into things like the uh, Maghreb al-Qaeda, you know, that's inspired these uh, Boko Haram and some of these other things down in Africa that were heretofore not, uh, that were heretofore secular and peaceful Muslims, by the way. And so the Holy See's voice there speaking up, I think is an important one, and, and it's had some, it has done some good here, culminating, I guess, last week with uh, Pope Francis mentioning the just war theory. You know, I, I, I don't know if it's the case or not, but I think it's kind of three things I would point out that are kind of uh, interestingly, uh, potentially linked, if you would. First of all, Secretary Kerry, even though President Obama's been, uh, has exhibited limited interest in working with the Holy See, I think Secretary Kerry, on, maybe on his own initiative, has shown some interest in that and has made a few trips to see Cardinal Paroline. That's a good thing. Second thing is, now the Pope comes out and says, you know, Maybe the just war theory has some potential application here, or at least maybe code word we'll go. We would look at uh, a military conflict against ISIL more like Iraq one, where we won't say anything, versus Iraq two, if the broad community of nations is involved, which is one of the requirements of the uh, just war theory. It can't just be one sovereign against another one, and uh, and um, you know here Secretary Kerry seems to be spending all of his time trying to develop exactly that some type of community of nations. And the good thing is some of the nations seem to be realizing that the threat applies to them and not just the Western world. What do you think um, are the big, I mean, besides persecution, you could talk about that still, but what are some of the big challenges? I mean, Pope Francis has, I mean, people really love Pope Francis. He, I think, he, you know, there's a, a, a sense of interest and, in, you know, what, about this, about this very interesting man. And people are, are there a lot of crowds in Rome still and, what do you think some of the um, challenges and opportunities for the Holy See, both, I guess, in, not only in evangelization, but diplomatically uh, in, say, the coming decade, especially in, right here in the pontificate of Pope Francis? Well, I, I think that the, um, the, the, the soft power voice against the radical Islam needs to keep, keep, keep up unabated, and I'm glad Pope Francis has found a voice in that area. I think with the, the, the 
a number of people that have been affected and marginalized by globalization and the technology revolution. I think the Holy See's voice is appropriate there, and I think Pope Francis has been a little misunderstood in what he said, and his perspective as an Argentine may may have been uh, unfairly uh, or unjustly uh, try manipulated by some of the media to make it sound like he's talking about the United States. Certainly, President Obama wanted to try to do that, and. Um, so those are important voices, just like the Acton Institute, figuring out, speaking up for a way to have free markets and capitalism solve the problem rather than statism. And I think the Holy, the Catholic social teaching is pretty much in line with that, and I think the Pope needs to continue to speak up and maybe clarify his mission a little bit in that respect. And if he'll do that, he'll be quite helpful to some of the people like the Acton Institute, people like Paul Ryan, that are coming, trying to come up with uh, more free market solutions to the dislocations which have resulted from globalization and a rapid expansion of technology. Let's talk a little bit about about globalization um, in in two areas. One, let's talk a little bit about you know Pope Francis's um, words that you you said were seem to be misinterpreted. What do you think? I mean, you said there's a problem with globalization, and, and many of the poor, to use the Holy Father's words, are excluded. Right? And I'm going to throw my, my view. This is my view: is that you know we often hear the idea that poor people are dominated by markets. I would argue that that's not the problem. The problem is not that they're dominated by markets; they are excluded from markets. Um, what's your take on, on on that? And what's your take on 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 the um, I think very important words of Pope Francis to make people aware of the of the reality of poverty? Yeah. See, I don't. I said this last night in a panel discussion with Jim Nicholson. I, you can't argue when the Pope says the end of capitalism is not money, it's improving people's lives. It goes back to Leo the Thirteenth. So, you know, uh, money's a means to an end. And and to have fungibility of capital and provide opportunity to more and more people, you need relatively free trade versus crony capitalism, monopolies, etc., uh, closed borders, you know. Uh, you just remember Zimbabwe used to be self-sufficient food back when they had free market farming. Uh, so there's a lot of principles bound up in the idea that that uh, um, the world needs a lot of goods and services, and unfortunately a lot of where a lot of the people are are not in the areas where the people can pay for the goods and services. So there's, you need some type of continued globalization uh, and movement of capital and labor to try to bring some of that into harmony. I mean, I, I saw a statistic that, argued that globalization's lifted over a billion people out of poverty. And, you know, when you look at some of the micro-enterprises in India and rural Latin America, things like that, unfortunately, in the manufacturing world, they've maybe come at the expense of some manufacturing workers here in the United States. Let's talk a little bit about free trade, and your, especially your role as, a, as a, an ambassador, right? As an ambassador, um, some people say, you know, the Ambassador is one of the least free positions you can have because you're not speaking for yourself, but you're representing the United States and U.S. foreign policy. What about did you you know, you talked about free trade. I mean, one of the critiques of the United States, I've heard probably many times, is that the United States talks about promoting free trade. But when it comes to, say, agriculture, it puts up high tariffs, it subsidizes its agriculture, it rigs trade, it either sends it over as as foreign aid or as highly subsidized. And um, take Haiti, for example. Um, we, you know, we, we see this in Haiti and other places. 
Um, how was that for you to, to be able to, to say, you know, I think you seem to be a believer in free trade, but sometimes the United States is, is maybe a believer in free trade, but not a practicer of free trade. Well, how do you yeah, deal with that? I think you've got to face the fact that there is no such thing as free trade per se when you have significant national interest in different countries that are going to have to be dealt with in anything but an authoritarian regime. And so uh, what we're really talking about is freer trade or as much free trade as can be accomplished by balancing the interest. And so, yeah, you can find any country anywhere can find instances to impeach that country's devotion to free trade and the movement of capital. But you've got to look back and say, on the whole, where is the best movement of labor and capital, and where is the most unfettered commerce and the least restrictive regulations and things like that? When you look at, on the whole, you know, the United States is certainly still still up there. And... Uh, a lot of Latin American countries are certainly not, which gets back to the Pope's perspective a little bit. You know, it's regulatory, bureaucratic, intense in organizing companies there. And a lot of the bigger companies are collusive with the government, and they have sometimes monopolistic market shares. I, I, you know, So with that in mind, I, I think that uh, we need to continue to push for freer trade and recognize that uh, agriculture in every country is kind of a sore spot. You know, the French butter makers are pretty well protected, just like our uh, wheat farmers. And uh, go for what we can get. As a businessman, let's talk a little bit maybe just about your experience. You said in the beginning of our conversation, um, when I went there, a businessman is trained to speak as clearly and understandably as possible and in the diplomacy, you, sometimes you just need to fill up the space. Um, what were some of the challenges you found? Was that difficult for you to think to kind of change your mode of relationship? And I guess the, related to that, maybe as another background is, you know, the United States is a, a young entrepreneurial country and culture. And the Vatican is an old, slow. You talk about time, right? Time in the Vatican is very different. Time in diplomatic circles are very different from American ideas of time and business ideas of time. W w how was that for you? Well, it, like I said, part of it was a learning curve. Uh, to go back to your comment about ambassadors being unfree to speak, I had it pretty good because I knew George Bush pretty well, and I knew what I what would be okay to say and not okay to say by him and what he and his administration were trying to do. So even though the State Department gets cold feet pretty quick if you try to speak clearly on some things, uh, I could speak up, and if I knew the president would, would be okay with it. And uh, so that helped. But still, you know, there are many times in, in diplomacy you have to speak obliquely uh, to avoid making a point uh, that's going to have uh, create more negatives than you want to create. Whereas, like I said, you know, in business and dealing with employees, they need certainty. They need to know that you mean what you say and you're saying what you mean. So those two things are can be can be uh, opposed at times. And uh, it was a bit of a learning curve. Um, but I'm, I, I think that, on the whole, President Bush is a pretty clear speaker and a pretty clear thinker, and, and so it, uh, it worked pretty well for us to be able to speak up clearly about his, uh, his views. You know, remember the, the cartoon in 2005 and six, the, the, the Danish cartoon that was republished around Europe that the... Uh, uh, showed the bombs coming out of Mohammed's head, and all the radical Muslims went crazy and started throwing Molotov cocktails through storefronts and 
whatnot. I didn't even ask the State Department. I did a press conference at, the, at our mission, got all the press I could find, and I said, this is ridiculous. This shows why the United States is such a great country, uh, the gist of it, because we don't do this kind of thing because we respect religious freedom and freedom of speech. And, and obviously uh, many parts of the Muslim world don't seem to understand that yet. And that violence uh, uh, in this manner is, is unwarranted in the modern world. And, you know, I didn't ask the State Department to do that. White House thought it was fantastic. You know? Did the State Department think that was fantastic? Well, there, there wasn't much they could say at that point. You know, you sometimes just have to ask for forgiveness and not permission. <laughs> Um, you know, one, one thing you talk about with, with President Bush, I mean, one th- I know there is some disagreement on the wars and things, but there seems to be a very clear alignment with President Bush and the Holy See on the dignity of life and the unborn. Um, how influential maybe was the Holy See and the thinking of, of um, Catholic theology and Christian theology on the president? I don't know that I could say. Uh, specifically, you know, uh, but, you know, he, he, he certainly shares the same values and wants the same outcomes, just like you said, you know, he has a deep, he's a deeply religious Christian person, and uh, he puts his uh, his life in the hands of God, and, and as such, it makes him, it made him a natural ally with the Holy See, and it was really great to be able to work on the stem cell business and, uh, and have the full backing of the administration. And uh, now you come to find out the scientist who opposed using uh, opposed having anybody tell them what to do now agree that they don't really need to use the artificial or the human the human embryo stem cells. So it's actually we kind of won the war, even though we lost a lot of battles. You know. Right. So okay. So let me let me conclude with um, one big question and then another kind of side. As you as you as you look forward, right? What what do you think are the prospects for the future relations between the United States? And the Holy See, and then what role do you think Pope Francis will have, and and uh, in the U.S. Vatican relations? When do you think Pope Francis will come to the United States? I know there's rumors he's going to come to Philadelphia. Is that finalized? Everybody seems to think that's pretty well baked in. The people I talk to, yeah, and and so now the speculation is, what else will he do? Will he accept John Boehner's invitation to address Congress? I'm certainly hopeful he'll speak at the UN. And many people have been talking lately about why she speak to the UN because they've behaved so poorly vis-a-vis the Holy See here recently about the abuse scandal uh, criticism coming out of the Human Rights Commission and things like that. And I think that's all the more reason he needs to speak at the UN. The more vile the organization, the more opportunity to contrast it with uh, uh, with the Church and with the Pope. So that would be a great, great thing if he can come. And, and I think that the Pope has, he's continued to uh, to attract people of all religious persuasions, and um, he's a global figure, and so that can only be good for uh, for uh, increasing the leverage of the Holy See's soft power diplomatic voice. You know, why do you think there's such hostility from the United Nations to the Holy well, See? Well, I think that uh, it's rooted in this, this, this combination of secularism, like going back to the 95 Cairo Population Conference, and where, where the Muslims actually were, our, were the Holy See's allies in opposing the abortion euthanasia planks. Uh, and then it's also rooted in this uh, anti-colonialism business of, you know, the developed versus developing world. And you overlay those two threads. Look, the, the U.N. doesn't like us either. And look at the U.N. Human Rights Commission where you've got people like Mugabe and Hugo Chavez on there. What kind of oxymoron is that? 
Yeah, we're, we're hostage by tons of little countries using the U.N. as an opportunity to beat up on the good big ones. Well, it's also ironic that the U.N., which I think is a great purveyor of neocolonialism, would would call the Vatican colonialist. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. I read a book a while back was recommended to me by a priest at Notre Dame called The White Man's Burden. I recommend it. Yeah. Right, and William Easterly. You've read it probably. Yep. It's, yeah, I've it, read it. It, it, it. Everybody should read that and realize how misguided macroeconomic broad brush policies are in trying to solve fundamentally individualistic and human problems. Ambassador Francis Rooney, thank you so much for your time. The book is The Global Vatican. Um, Ambassador Francis Rooney and your experiences, an inside look at the Catholic Church, world politics, and the extraordinary relationship between the United States and the Holy See. It's a very uh, pleasure to have you with us here, uh, visiting Acton Radio, and uh, delight to talk with you. Thank you, Michael. Have a nice day. And with that, we bring yet another edition of Radio Free Acton to a close. I want to offer my thanks to Michael Matheson Miller, research fellow here at the Acton Institute, who took some time to come down and conduct the interview today with Ambassador Rooney. Always great to have you in the studios, Michael. Thanks so much for coming on down. Thanks as well to Ambassador Francis Rooney uh, for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us about his new book here on Radio Free Acton. The book, of course, is entitled The Global Vatican. You can get a copy uh, at all of the typical online retailers, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and the like. Uh, And I'd also encourage you, if you've got a good brick-and-mortar bookstore around you, feel free to head down there and ask for the book as well. Uh, Don't want to leave out the small businesses and the independent booksellers. Far be it from me to do that. And uh, naturally, I want to thank you as well for joining us here on Radio Free Acton. It's great to have uh, folks who listen. That's the reason we do the podcast, and uh, it's uh, always a wonderful thing to have you along. We're very grateful to have your ears on our podcast, and uh, we hope you'll stay tuned for more coming up in future weeks on Radio Free Acton. As usual, I want to remind you as well to check out radio.acton.org for all of our podcast archives, and check out the Acton Institute Power Blog. If you haven't done so recently, you'll want to do that on a daily basis for great news, information, links, commentary, all different stuff from an Acton perspective. You can find it on the internet at blog.acton.org. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's a pleasure to be with you on Radio Free Acton uh, from week to week, and we hope you'll stick with us for another edition coming up soon here on Radio Free Acton. Have a good day, everybody.